Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Find more great podcasts at boingboing.net and learn more about both of my books, You Are Not So Smart and You Are Now Less Dumb at youarenotsosmart.com. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, Episode 10. of warning before we begin this episode. From here forward, you will hear facts about sex and sexuality. If subjects like that make you uncomfortable or you have children nearby who you would rather not hear things which might be sexually frank and possibly offensive, this might be a good episode to skip. Okay, now for everyone else, it's time for Facts Facts About Pornography. Yes, some facts about pornography, specifically internet pornography. A little fact-giving music, if you will, Jimmy. 12% of all websites are pornography. 25% of web searches are searching for pornography. 42% of people who use the internet view pornography. 40 million citizens of the United States of America regularly visit porn sites. 70% of men ages 18-24 view pornography online at least once a month. And a third of all internet downloads are for porn, more than the combined traffic of Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon Video combined. So, if we are to believe those statistics, that means that there is a a lot of pornography out there. A lot of pornography. And it would naturally lead us all to wonder, what is that doing to us? What is that doing to our minds? How is access to that much pornography changing us? Or is it? And I tend to take the side of Bill Hicks on this matter. This is what he said. Before Playboy, before Penthouse, before pornographic movies or Madonna videos ever existed, people still had sexual thoughts. Okay? How do you know this? We're here. Then a little bit later into his set, he says... You see, they're getting the cart before the horse on this pornography issue. Playboy does not create sexual thoughts. There are sexual thoughts, and therefore there is Playboy. If you spend much time on the internet, you have probably run across Rule 34. And if you haven't, I'll introduce it to you. Rule 34 of the internet states, if it exists, there is porn of it. And some people say there is also Rule 35, which is if no porn is found of anything at any given moment, don't worry, it will eventually be made. 
So, as Bill Hicks said, sexuality has always been a fundamental part of the human experience, an inescapable barrage of urges and desires and thoughts and behaviors we all experience. And with the unlimited freedom of speech provided us by the Internet, thanks to rules 34 and 35, we've come to see that all that sexuality is nuanced and complicated, and it can be really, really weird. But is what's weird bad or what is sexually deviant Is it also perverted? And is perversion something that's out there, outside of us? Or are we all perverts in our own way? That is what we are going to explore today on the You Are Not So Smart podcast. My name is David McRaney. I will be your host on each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. We talk about a different subject in the realm of self-delusion. Sometimes it's fallacies and heuristics and biases and all that stuff. And sometimes it's other things like just the general idea of what we're going to talk about in this episode, perversion. What is it? Is it bad? And what does science have to say about it? And after we know what science has to say about it, how should that affect the way we proceed legally, morally, and in our own private lives? How should we deal with the things that we're learning about sexuality and what is and is not normal and whether what is and is not normal even matters? Now, when it comes to what science has to say about sex and sexuality, that's, that's an important question. That's an important answer. Because you have to consider that up until 1973, homosexuality was considered a mental disorder. And now a generation is inheriting the world who has never known gay people to be sick in the head. As people who are in need of help from a doctor because of, you know, who they are, how they were born. And um, that's not to say that this transition to this scientific self-correction has has been easy. I mean, consider... um, the people who are trying to become president recently and the things they had to say. In fact, consider what's been said by a lot of people recently. This is uh, an excerpt from a video put together by Lambda Legal. Homosexual behavior is harmful not only to society, but more importantly to the individuals who engage in that behavior. You don't need to be in the pew every Sunday to know that there's something wrong in this country when gays can serve openly in the military. People who are trapped in uh, the homosexual lifestyle, they're in constant rebellion with uh, order, with their natural order, with natural law. If there's one characteristic trait of the gay agenda in the public school system, it's this. It's sneaky. It's usually designed to look like something else. It's disguised as something else. I have a book called Market, The Marketing of Evil by David Capellian, and it tells how um, Expert genius Harvard marketers actually came up with the word gay rights so that the American public would accept it as natural behavior. If you're involved in the gay and lesbian lifestyle, it's bondage. Yeah, so some of those people were trying to become president of the United States and got a pretty long ways along the path to getting that. A lot of people wish they could have voted for them at some point. And the rest of the people were on television saying things they got those people got up in the morning and ate breakfast were like i'm going on tv in front of millions of people and i'm going to say these horrible things about homosexuality so you know it should be noted that we've come a long way but not as far as we should have by now just listen listening to those sound bites should clue you into that fact and that's why culture has gotten in the way of scientific investigation into human sexuality for a while now. Our thoughts, our feelings, our behaviors, what is and is not statistically quote-unquote normal, what is and is not a purely biological reaction to sensory inputs, what is and is not dangerous or harmful or perverse, 
All that stuff, as far as science is concerned, it's still a mess, and it's been a mess for a while. That's why if you go back to like watch a program like Cosmos with the amazing Carl Sagan and watch a YouTube video of Richard Feynman or listen to some of the great scientist communicators of our modern era like Neil deGrasse Tyson or Brian Cox or Brian Greene or Michio Kaku, you will hear a lot about the early scientists and early thinkers who changed our perception of ourselves and our understanding of our place in the universe. And most of those people will be astronomers or physicists or chemists and you won't hear much about the early thinkers into the way the mind works. Um, of course, most of those people, because uh, psychology hadn't been invented yet, they will be philosophers. But even the philosophers of antiquity, the ones that we learn about, most of them were way, way off, deeply influenced by social norms from their own cultures or eras, too underwater culturally to realize it. If you go back to 1642, about the same time uh, Copenhagen University had completed an astronomical observatory in New Haven, Connecticut, a man was executed for supposedly making love to his master's pig because the pig had given birth to a fetus with a deformed eye similar to the servant's eye. There was sort of a mania at the time concerning allegations of bestiality and as uh, science writer Jesse Baring says, um, no one knew that uh, you couldn't have children with animals. And so many people were actually killed in similar situations to this poor man because people uh, were so ignorant about the science of sex. And Jesse Baring writes a lot about that sort of thing in his new book, Perv, The Sexual Deviant in All of Us. It's an interesting book because, you know, when, when you think about science, there's a lot to be proud of when you think about the early days, about figuring out our place in the universe. But the science of sex is not one of them. Depending on the time period and the geographical location, homosexuality can either be a normal part of daily life or an act punishable by death. And that's true even today. And masturbation, depending on where you live and when, might be considered healthy or funny or something that might get you sent to a surgeon or get a part of your body cut to bits or sewn up. Psychology has considered homosexuality a normal part of the human experience since 1973, but it's taken a while to come around to the fact that maybe you shouldn't call homosexuals perverts. But a lot of people in this country and in many other countries still do, which shows that the science and the public's understanding of that science um, it's sort of lagging. The public's acceptance of what science has to say is a little bit behind. It's not like food for which we have little problem seeing clearly. No one seems concerned over speculation that we have deeply evolved psychological motivations to engage in behaviors that seek out and consume food that is laden with salt, fat, and sugar. Those things were hard to come by a long time ago, and so we have a hard time dealing with our insane urges to eat as much of that stuff as we can. So we accept the explanation from evolutionary psychology concerning the popularity of the KFC Double Down, which is a sandwich with fried chicken for bread and innards made of bacon and cheese, which, according to CNN in 2010, accounted for 5% of KFC's overall sales. Now, why is that popular? Well, the KFC Double Down is, is evoking something deep within us developed through evolution and adaptation under pressure from environments unlike what we live in today. And that is then expressed culturally and then enjoyed and hated and mocked and bought and sold through the lenses and filters of cultural norms. We spend a lot of time thinking about food. 
And food has built and destroyed cities, driven wars, changed the course of our species through agriculture and other means. But the same can be said of sex, but it's different somehow. We don't think there is much about food that is perverse, not unless the food gets involved with sex in some way. But sexual thoughts, feelings, actions, and so on, they come from places just as deep inside of us, evolutionarily speaking. And though we have our customs and religious beliefs and we have all the other things that are expressed through norms culturally, um, both, both food and sex, in modern, secular, educated society, we treat sex with just as many taboos and preconceived notions as we did a hundred years ago and a thousand. But that's changing quickly. And that's what we're going to talk about today with our guest, Jesse Baring. He began his career as a psychology professor at the University of Arkansas and is the former director of the Institute of Cognition and Culture at Queens University, Belfast. But he's written several books since then. The one that is most recent that we're going to talk about today is Perv, the Sexual Deviant in All of Us. He is a great writer. Aside from his insights and from his uh, great research into these topics, he's also such an incredible wordsmith. I enjoyed soaking in um, his wordplay and uh, his prose. I loved reading this book and getting ready for this interview. He is um, an author who may have seen in New York Magazine, The Guardian, The New Republic, Scientific American, Slate, Discover. Um, he's a great science writer and he writes a lot about the science of sexuality. And this new book is wonderful. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. Let's listen to what he has to say. Jesse, uh, let's just get right to it. Uh, I have a question before we really dig into your book, and I it's because you seem to be um, just the expert to ask this question, and I've wondered this for a while. From a psychological standpoint, why do high-profile politicians and people with millions of dollars at stake keep ruining their lives and careers by sending unsolicited dick pics? Oh, the Anthony Weiner situation there. Um, that's an excellent question. I. You know, I, th I have very mixed feelings, I suppose, about what, what he did. I mean, to take him as an example, um, first of all, strategically, politically, I think it was a horrible decision to uh, well, to continue uh, sending um, illicit messages to people, obviously, that are going to put him in these um, awkward positions, uh, and also to take pictures of his penis and post it on Twitter and so on. Um, on the other hand, who cares? Uh <laughs> It's a penis. Um, it's not. Uh, it's not a. You know, it's not a weapon that's going to cause mass destruction. At least, well, hopefully not. Anyway, um, so I, I have, like I said, I have mixed feelings about it. I, I don't think it's harmful or bad necessarily what he did. I think more people maybe should be showing their penises in public. I think that we probably have a better society. But um, <laughs> from a political perspective, it was probably not the wisest decision. Well, that sort of leads into a lot of the subject matter of your book. So why, uh, at least in modern United States society. Why did people? Why are people so obsessed, and why did they freak out so much over those pictures? Uh, we have, I mean, we have we have some serious issues. I think when it comes to open conversation about frank subject matter surrounding sexuality, uh, it's a it's a cultural artifact um, that goes back hundreds of years, at least in Western society, uh, and I think it's revealing that. Uh, 
if we look at, you know, we'll probably talk about, I would imagine some of the, the paraphilias or fetishes, um, some of which are harmful. Mm-hmm. If you look at the, the frequency of those in some of the hunter gatherer societies, uh, small scale horticulturalists, they're, they're basically unheard of the, in, in the, in the more sexually permissive societies. Uh, so I think that we're not really doing ourselves any favors by being such a, uh, prohibitive and, and punitive uh, sexual uh, society. We're probably breeding more sexual deviance than we would otherwise. Hmm. Oh, by the way, can I just say, it, while we were talking about penises, I, I yeah. actually sort of ran into a, I ran into a, you know, an interesting, pro- an interesting problem with not this book, but my last book, which was a collection of essays, and it was titled "Why Is the Penis Shaped Like That?" Right. And uh, the publisher. They, you know, they were trying to get media and, and uh, some PR for it, of course. Um, and a lot of the radio stations and television networks that we approached uh, would not even look at it simply because it had the word penis in the title, <laughs> which, you know, it's, it's bizarre. It's, a anatomical, it's an anatomically correct term. It's a body part. Um, if you think about talking about uh, politicians, if you think about Bob Dole, for instance, um, and his erectile dysfunction, right. those types of commercials, they don't use the word penis ever. It's just simply erectile dysfunction. And you're, uh, I remember your article about why is the penis shaped that way. It's one of those things that uh, I sent to a lot of people and put on like social media, and people were like, whoa, calm down. But it's, uh, it's such a fascinating uh, thing. Why, why is the penis shaped that way? Well, uh, I mean, the best theory is an evolutionary theory, in my my point of view, um, and it's empirically supported by some laboratory studies, some clever studies. And the argument basically is that the, uh, the the human penis is distinctively shaped with that coronal ridge underneath the, the gland's head to retract or to pull out semen from competing males that had sex with that same female within about a 48-hour period of time, because that's the length so that's basically the lifespan of your average sperm cell. So what it tells us about human sexuality ancestrally was that women were having sex with multiple male partners within that short period of time, whether they were doing it willingly or through sexual coercion is an entirely different question. Mm. And if I'm not mistaken, it also helps explain the refractory period because uh, you don't want to pump out your own semen. Right. It would be self-defeating, basically, if you were to ejaculate and then to <laughs> pull out own semen through continued thrusting. So um, you've probably noticed if you have a penis or if you've seen this in action, the penis becomes flaccid pretty quickly after <laughs> after you ejaculate. And I, it's uh, painful. Or not, well, it's, not, it's pretty uncomfortable usually um, to continue having sex after an orgasm if you're a male. Right. And, and um, what I love about the research in that, uh, I believe they made, um, there were a lot of scientists who were playing around with um, scientific dildos and scientific uh, uh, vaginas and fake semen, and it was a very bizarre experiment. Yeah, this was Gordon Gallup's work at SUNY Albany. Um, he's a personal hero of mine. I, I talk about his work quite a bit, quite a bit but he had uh, different, differently uh, sized and shaped penis uh, dildos, uh, some of which had um, uh, the, the gland's head, some of which were basically the headless horsemen, no, no heads in terms of the dildos. Um, and looking at the amount of, uh, artificial seminal fluid that could be pulled out from this artificial, uh, um, female vagina. That, and of course you know, the, one, the ones with the more prominent, uh, coronal ridge pulled out the more, uh, of this substance. <laughs> that is fantastic. I just love the idea of uh, people in lab coats doing that research. Um, yes. It's, um, okay, not to get too far from your book, So, but even though that's right in line with what you talk about, um, 
you come right out of the gate saying um, in the book that the story of human sexuality that we've come to believe, this is uh, your words, is uh, the, the story of human sexuality we've come to believe is true in reality is a lie. So um, what would you say is that story and why is it a lie? I think we're, we're still uncovering that story. Uh, and the reason I say that it's a, a lie, and maybe that's a bit, a bit strong, it is in many cases, it is a lie, though, um, is because what we know about other people's sexual behavior and more specifically their sexual desires, how how they think in terms of what turns them on and what arouses them um, is simply what they tell us on self-reports and surveys and questionnaires. And even with the best controlled uh, self-report measures, there's still concern, I think, because of the uh, you know, the, the loaded topics that we're dealing with here, what they will share with the researcher. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know only, only what others tell us, unless we go, uh, unless we use measures, empirical measures that are much more invasive, really, physiological measures of erection and vaginal lubrication. Uh, to me, those reflect more accurately uh, people's hidden desires. Mm-hmm. But usually those studies are reserved for uh, for forensic reasons, for uh, people who have committed some sort of sex crimes to uh, for further testing. So we're unfurling in a scientific sense, and um, and a lot of your book talks about how how it's important that one, now that we're moving into um, uncharted empirical waters, that we should um, we should be brave enough to take that at face value instead of injecting our own morality into it. Correct. Yes, the you know one of the big themes I, I try to emphasize in Perv is that there are psychosexual orientations. These are you know, and, and this is a um, uh, this captures our desires, our erotic pattern of attraction. What what sort of triggers our our neurological mechanisms, our genital responses, and so on. And then there are actions, and those are orthogonal. Um, our desires don't always translate into actions. They're completely separate. And I think that we need to reserve our moral judgment for actions that cause demonstrable harm to others, not for simply the way that we think or what turns us on. Right. So the, what's going to uh, give a lot of readers pause, I think, is that early on you say that we, the reader has a lot more in common and, and anyone reading it would have a lot more in common with the average pervert than you would uh, normally be aware of. And you actually say that uh, straight to the reader quote, you are a sexual deviant, a pervert through and through. So um, when you say that and you predict that people are going to uh, go on their, uh, be a little bit defensive about that, where are you headed with that idea? Well, largely to the, the issue of sexual deviancy being a relative term. There, there, is, no, there is no clear-cut sexual normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that because of the tremendous uh, cross-cultural variation in human sexuality. Um, We know that because of the major historical fluctuations, even in the same societies, over what is considered normal and deviant. Um, And so we have to either embrace the possibility that um, deviance is relative or simply assume that that, uh, we have it right at this mo- this precise slice of time, our uh, Western society, this very uh, narrow, uh, uh, rigorous, uh, you know, um, sexually 
you know, prohibitive uh, demographic. We've got all the answers and everything. Everybody else was wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, I don't think there's any evidence to uh, support uh, that and embracing that position. So why is it then, and you write about this a lot and it's a lot, there are a lot of shocking things in there. Why is it that previous era, from your perspective, what, why do you think previous eras and um, the previous incarnations of our culture and all cultures, why were they so and there's many of these things are still true in, in other um, cultures today. But why are people so used to be and, and some currently so punitive and cruel concerning sexual deviations from the norm? Uh, well, I mean, from an evolutionary perspective, and of course, you know, I take an evolutionary approach in most of my work. Um, there's nothing more high value and strategic uh, and useful in terms of our social knowledge than uh, what you know somebody else's sexual peccadillos or behaviors or desires mm-hmm. to have that information about somebody else is incredibly, um, high value knowledge. So, uh, so we've used that, um, in terms of manipulating our, our social systems to, um, uh, to suppress those, I believe that, um, would be considered to be threats to our own, you know, at a very reductionistic level threats to our own, reproductive success. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're hyper, we're hyper vigilant, uh, to the sexuality of others that, um, that are abnormal or, or somehow, um, would be uh, impediments to our reproductive fitness. And cause there's, there are cultures today that are killing, um, homosexuals or, uh, and there's been a lot of, um, there's been a lot of, uh, attention drawn to, uh, statements and policies in Russia. Um, and it's, you can see it's sort of the, you can see that there are pockets out there that are lagging behind um, what we would consider whatever wave, whatever pulse we're we're a part of. Um, what what is it that would you? What do you think is making it so that um, people in our culture may be more tolerant, not as tolerant as they should be, than another culture, even though we're both on the same planet in the same era? I think we are moving. Um, relatively slowly, but I think that, you know, it, it definitely has happened and we see it happening more often is we're moving toward a focus on harm, the question of harm, mm-hmm. um, and away from the question of what's natural and what's normal. And that's a good thing because philosophically what's natural and what's normal is completely irrelevant. Um, as I write in Perv, normal is just a number. It has, it, it connotes no moral, um, value. Uh, and natural, if we if we really want to subscribe to the principle of what's uh, natural is good or is right, then basically we are assuming that there is a there was a, a creator, there was some sort of preconceived design for our genitals and what we should be doing with our genitals and what's right. natural, therefore isn't in line with um, that creator's uh, moral intentions. And there's absolutely no reason to assume that that's the case. And you know, thinking back to the conversation from earlier. If it were, we are we certainly aren't naturally monogamous. Our penises are designed for having sex uh, with multiple partners in a short period of time. Um, so I think that uh, clearly the naturalness question and the normal question are, are basically dead ends uh, ethically, mm-hmm. and we should be moving increasingly toward, toward this issue of harm. I want to give you a, a chance to sort of pontificate on one of your major points, which is uh, you write about how. Um, you were you were mentioning this a second ago that sexual deviance is uh, no more and no less a statistical concept um, that signifies that you're off course from societal norms and that uh, since there's so little that's universal about human sexuality, um, you 
straight up say without any hesitation that, that, that it's an illusion that there is an objective right and wrong when it comes to um, sexual nature. So if you don't mind, could you sort of unfold, uh, unpack that? Uh, right. So the main issue for me is that we need to really begin thinking for ourselves and, and not rely, um, as we have been, on biblical prescriptions, um, um, legal concepts. Um, I'm not advocating people break the law. Obviously, that would just be stupid. Uh, but I think that we do need to think more deeply about the laws that we do have in a lot of cases uh, and and really sharpen our operational definition of harmfulness when it comes to human sexuality. Harm is very difficult. I'm not saying that harm is an easy issue to deal with when it comes to to sex. Um, And the reason it is so complicated is because it's entirely subjective. What's uh, harmful for one person sexually is uh, completely meaningless or harmless um, and in some cases beneficial to another. We have a very difficult time keeping ourselves from uh, assuming that, that uh, since we would be harmed, therefore others must be harmed as well. So we sort of demand that others experience the harm that we would experience uh, if that had happened to us. And I think that's a philosophical error. I think it's a, um, it's a moral problem because uh, we're basically sticking our nose into the business of others um, that, that don't need our intervention. Mm-hmm. So my favorite stuff in the book is it deals with how gross sex is when you basically look at it in a certain way and um, considering what you put into uh, what we put into ourselves and others and where we put those things and fluids and emissions and all that sort of stuff. And you write about how we've evolved to deal with a particular kind of disgust. Could you talk about that? Well, the... Uh... I mean, I, I actually began thinking about this, and I opened that chapter talking about um, my experience, my, my first sexual experience with another man was was with somebody who was a, a foot fetishist. Right. Um, a podophile is the technical term for a foot fetishist. And I've always had a really strong aversion, uh, disgust-related aversion to feet, especially my own feet. Um, so it was it was so striking to me that that this man was interested in sucking on my toes, and uh, yeah, to me that was just so disgusting, and I couldn't imagine how he could actually be aroused. Mm-hmm. Um, this wouldn't kill his arousal, when um, it, it would it would have done so for me certainly. But there are there are some categories, uh, some things on the human body that. Um, if not they're uni- if not universally disgusting they they certainly define our um, our natural sort of uh, uh, disgust patterns when it comes to sex so if we're in the middle of having sex with uh, somebody else and we happen to notice that their genitals have a strange color or there's a, a bizarre odor waffling from them or some strange lesions or something along those lines you know pre- it basically pull- pulls our erotic kill switch um, and we, we lose our arousal. And of course, that's adaptive because if you go through with the act, um, you know, the likelihood of actually acquiring that STD is uh, going to be quite high. Um, the, 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 some of the more interesting studies, however, suggest that um, for, let's say that you're, let's say that you're a woman who's, or a gay man, that's, that's um, performing oral sex. And there's the possibility that the partner is going, the person's going to, ejaculate on your face you've got seminal fluid and that's disgusting if you're not aroused certainly mm-hmm. i mean if you know that right um the thought of you know for most of us when we're not turned on the thought of swallowing ejaculate or seminal fluid is just revolting kind of send shivers up your spine but um 
if you're super turned on, you know, your your subjective perception of that substance changes dramatically and you're much more willing to uh, to indulge in that type of behavior and be faced with that bodily substance. So there are all these, you know, interesting sort of pulleys and levers that are associated with our sexual arousal um, connected to disgust. When we're super aroused, the bottom basically the bottom line is that um, our disgust uh, sensitivity decreases substantially. And um, uh, that allows us to go through with the important Darwinian act of having sex for reproductive purposes. And this fog, uh, you talk about how lust and disgust are sort of antagonistic forces pulling in you know, different directions. Lust can like pull disgust back into the light side and keep it out of the dark side. And, um, right. that, and to me, uh, uh, one of the first things I was thinking was like in that, that fog of lust, maybe that's where the dick pics come from. Was that, uh, whenever... Absolutely. Absolutely. I would imagine that um, you know, many people, not just Anthony Weiner, but many people have regrets for things that they've done um, in the heat of the moment, that's Dan Ariely's term for this, his studies showing that he had these great studies with college male uh, undergraduate students. Uh, he asked them to masturbate to pornography right up until the point of having a climax um, to get as turned on and as aroused as he possibly can. And then he gave them this questionnaire asking them um, if, you know, the extent to which they would be willing or how aroused they would be by a variety of sexually deviant behaviors, basically, like having sex with an animal or having sex with a morbidly obese person or having sex with the elderly, having sex um, uh, even with a, a child looking at uh, pedophilia, um, having sex, uh, sexually coercive behavior, rape, basically. And it's it's disturbing, but it's also interesting that, um, that these men who were super aroused uh, were much more willing to engage in those things at that point in time than they were when they were erotically sober. Right. And um, it's not, it's, it is fascinating. And it also scares you to, uh, so much when you read. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. It's, 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 uh, it's icy cold fear runs through your like, Oh my God, that is true. Um, and there's also a, a female parallel uh, when, when uh, females are high in conception risk, you write about that also can alter their behavior. Right. So this, these are some studies coming out of Dan Fessler's lab um, at UCLA showing that uh, women who are you know, looking at you know, giving these questionnaires to uh, women at various phases of their, their reproductive cycle, um, they become much more judgmental in terms of what's wrong and what's not and what they would be willing to do and what's gross and disgusting when um, they are they themselves are high in conception risk. Um, so they're, they're much, they, they find it much more unsettling, for instance, to think about having sex with a 85 year old, um, at the peak of their, uh, cycle than they would if they were somewhere else along, uh, somewhere else on there on that track. Wow. That is so fascinating. Um, and I know we have to get to this, uh, before we, uh, part ways, we have to talk about the paraphilias and, um, you take great delight in uh, naming paraphilias. I saw on your uh, on your Twitter account that you had recently asked what um, what would Molly Cyrus's paraphilia be with uh, playing around with the um, the wrecking ball mm -hmm. and the uh, the sledgehammer. Um, uh, That's up for grabs. Yeah, it's up for grabs, yeah, right? Uh, I, term, yeah. I looked it up. Uh, I think hammer would be a good one. I, lo I looked up Greek for hammer. I think it's sephiri, so sephiriphilia maybe. Um, That's, that sounds good. I think let's do that. Definitely. The um, so when it comes to paraphilias, uh, you write that um, thanks to 
our modern psychological research and years of research, we can now find common ground with these people. So what, what do you see as the nature of this common ground? I see people that have um, clinically diagnosable paraphilias and fetishes as being uh, examples of sort of extreme examples of what most of us have experienced, which is uh, some type of sexual imprinting uh, early in our childhood experiences. Uh, so, something we can often, something, you know, thing that, that basically sort of our kinks and our turns on, turn ons, um, oftentimes link back to discrete experiences, events, episodes that happen to us, um, at surprisingly young ages. The paraphiliacs, um, tend to say that, uh, something happened between the age of four and nine. You know, those, those aren't, that's not a critical window. And there are probably a couple of years on either, either end of that sensitive period of, uh, vulnerability or susceptibility to uh, being sexually imprinted, but things happen in our our childhood that that many people can at least trace back to, uh, or can trace forward to what arouses them primarily now. This is mostly a male phenomenon, but but some women too can can report that. Mm-hmm. But a paraphiliac is somebody who um, really is erotically dependent can only derive uh, sexual satisfaction by a very circumscribed, narrow, um, uh, abnormal target, <laughs> either, either, um, an object, uh, an inanimate object or an animal, a, uh, a partner that's either beneath reproductive age or above, dramatically above reproductive age in the case of gerontophilia, people who are attracted to the elderly, um, and so on. What would you say is your favorite paraphilia? Uh, my my personal favorite, <laughs> right? Well, right. They're all they're all incredibly fascinating. Um, uh, and and I and by, by the way, I got the I got many of the paraphilias, the list of paraphilias from a forensic um, a clinical textbook. Um, and I, I spoke to the author of that, an Indian scholar, who was the one that was responsible for for cobbling all these all of these together. And I asked him, you know, point blank, whether these are real. You know, some of them are just almost, they, they just defy right. belief, you know. Like marrying, marrying a bridge or uh, having sex with the Eiffel Tower. You said there are people who are... Yeah, are there are people with tornado, tornado paraphilias or they can only have orgasms by falling down the stairs or, uh, you know, things like that. I, I and, and he... Sorry, go ahead. No, I, I don't know why, but the one that was the most insane to me was fetishizing uh, hearing aids. <laughs> right, right. Object, anything, and in terms of a fetish object, it's it's uh, anything basically that makes contact with the body can become eroticized. Mm. Um, so the person craves that object really because it has made physical contact with the person that they desire. So somebody with a um, a hearing aid fetish isn't attracted to brand new factory sealed hearing aids. Typically, it's just hearing aids that have been worn by people that he or she is attracted to. Char- charged um, with, their, like, with their with their essence. Right. It, it somehow has absorbed in their mind the person's essence, just like a panty fetishist. They're not going to go to Walmart and just buy a, <laughs> you know, a pair of uh, um, uh, plastic wrapped uh, panties. They want something from that person's uh, dresser. Uh, and yeah, so <laughs> that's what my favorite one was. I, I really um, I, I would I would say perhaps the the objective sexuals I find very fascinating. Um, these are people who are attracted to, or the objectophiles is another term for this. These are people who are attracted to objects, not because they've made contact, physical contact with the body, with somebody that they like, um, but just because of the object in and of itself. Mm -hmm. So they see the object as having a personality 
uh, as having emotions and desires and also sexual feelings. And that includes sexual feelings for them as well. Um, so like the woman that married the Eiffel Tower, but um, there are also people that I talk about in the book that fall in love with particular um, chairs or particular flags, um, uh, music keyboards. I think one man was uh, really into um, and they see the objects as having a personality, uh, which includes sexual desires. Uh, um, but I think that that many of us can un- can understand uh, fetishism uh, at a very basic level. In, in the book, I talk about uh, my experience. You know, before I came out of the closet, I was a gay teenager, and I had a crush on this boy in school, and he um, discarded his Diet Coke can, and the and um, I took it home and I masturbated to it just because I knew that his lips had touched it. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe I'm a sexual. De- I am a sexual deviant. I'm happy to admit that. But but um, uh, I don't think that's too uncommon, really. To you know, maybe you haven't masturbated to a diet coke can, but to um, be oriented or to to favor or uh, to keep um, in in close contact something that something that you're really attracted to has touched mm-hmm. um, is is a basic human phenomenon. Uh, I'm not a fetishist in terms of being dependent on Diet Coke cans now. Um, it's just something that, uh, that that it was the closest I could get at the time. And that's what, well, the, one of the great things about this book is that, yes, it's very fun. And it's um, there's there's a lot of these strange, interesting things in it. But you do uh, – there is definitely, from my reading of it, that you do have – you are headed toward a very important point. And um, – the, I don't want to get the, to lose that point in our conversation today. Uh, it, probably the most controversial part of your book um, deals with something you call the sexual slot machine and the implications of that thing. Um, I just wanted to give you a chance to sort of talk about that before we uh, get out of here. Right. So, you know, I think one big uh, lingering question is where do these forms of sexual deviance come from? Um, you know, both the evolutionary question, is there a function or is this just simply a complete anomaly from a biological perspective, but also the developmental or etymological, uh, the etiological question from a clinical perspective, uh, where does the individual, um, the, how does this come, where does this come from in terms of, uh, whether it's genetic or, uh, something that happens to them in the early childhood and so on. We can't answer that question because we can't do controlled experimental studies on uh, children, and fortunately so. We can't take a, a batch of infants and um, uh, assign them to some experimental manipulation where we see and, and control their development to a control group um, and see who grows up in 18 years to be the sexual deviants. Uh, most parents aren't going to volunteer their children for a study like that, of course. Um, so we don't know the answers to those big questions. However, uh, most of the evidence does suggest, at least, that um, sexual orientation is something that is completely irrevocable uh, once the individual reaches reproductive maturity. These are lifelong patterns of attraction. And the slot machine example I give basically uh, is simply um, alluding to that, that, uh, that um, as a metaphor, we can imagine each person coming into the world and um, there are any number of factors that can uh, that can impact or lead to the particular outcome that uh, that appears uh, on the slot machine if somebody were to pull that level that lever. Um, they're going to be gay, bi, or straight. They're going to be um, uh, attracted to uh, what's deemed a socially inappropriate target. 
Um, they're going to have a particular erotic age orientation in terms of the age of the person, if they're attracted to people, that is what that arouses them the most, um, uh, and so on. And uh, it's beyond the person's control um, to, to, to assume that we have any uh, um, say or um, can influence the way that those, uh, those slot machines uh, pan out is completely delusory, I think. So we have to simply accept the fact that people, the outcome on that slot machine window is what it is, and then we've got to deal with it. And in the, in the you know, if you look at us in the stream of time here, we know that in the past, um, people tried to cure homosexuals, uh, women who masturbated would get, have clitorectomies, uh, you know, be t- children would be taken to a doctor and get a clitorectomy. You write about all this stuff, and it seems like we've, come a long way, but, um, you write about how we're at a point now where we are extremely tolerant in comparison to how we used to be, but we have a long ways to go still. Um, and if we're tossing aside all these old myths and all these, um, these old sort of strangely moralistic, not, not based in science ways of looking at the world that you, you say, and I love this quote, uh, it's not just the road less traveled as the road never traveled because no society has ever, has ever proceeded from this point. So as an expert, as someone who has really uh, devoured this topic and really understands it well, from your perspective, how do you think we should be proceeding as a society from this point? Well, again, I think that we need to... Um, completely throw away these questions of what's normal and what's natural. There's absolutely no currency in those whatsoever if we're trying to decide what should and shouldn't be allowable in society. What's natural and what's normal are either um, religious or their population level uh, averages, uh, just numbers that have no real moral weight behind them. So if we want to be a secularly informed, um, scientifically rational humane society, we need to be spending far more time clearly uh, picking apart this question of harm. Uh, and I don't have all the answers to this because I think it's a very difficult, ch- mm-hmm. it's a challenge. But um, we, we still are, you know, we're still grappling uh, as a society, I think, with the, with, with the naturalness uh, uh, position. So we've got we've got a, a ways to go still uh, moving. I think we're becoming aware of the, the harm question. We're moving slowly toward that, but we haven't abandoned the naturalness uh, concept entirely yet. And that's what I would I would like to see people doing. Well, your book is amazing. It's uh, I it, it was very challenging, and I felt myself being uh, I was put into a lot of uncomfortable intellectual positions by the book, but. Um, and it was really great in that way. And I don't think I've been challenged this much uh, by something in a long time from the world of psychology. It's really cool. Um, and I thank you for writing it. Um, thank you. Um, I think that a lot of people are going to be interested in trying to track you down and figure out what you're doing. So uh, if you could, just uh, let everyone know how they can find you on the Internet. Um, I'm pretty easy to find. You can find me on Twitter, just uh, at Jesse Baring. I also have a website, uh, jessebaring.com. Uh, and uh, you can you can find me easily enough from there. I, I try to respond uh, to to readers uh, and uh, listeners' uh, uh, questions uh, as as much as I can. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was a, absolutely a delight. Thank you, thank you. Appreciate it.
I am so happy to say that You Are Not So Smart is now part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. And there are so many cool podcasts over there. You need to go to boingboing.net and check out all of them. There's this new one that they just added called The New Disruptors. And this is how it's described. The New Disruptors tell stories that provide practical inspiration about the way that creative people and producers connect with audiences to perform, conjole, convince, sell, and interact using new methods. A new episode every Thursday. Free downloads and streaming available at boingboing.net. You should check out this podcast. It's super cool. If you're someone like me who has created this thing and you're trying to figure out how to get as many people as possible to see, hear, listen, read uh, that thing, this is the podcast you want to check out. It's called The New Disruptors and you can find it at boingboing.net. And now it's time for cookies. On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I read a piece of self-delusion news or a scientific study while I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or reader. You can send your recipes to david at youarenotsosmart.com. That's right. Send your recipes to me, and if I pick and bake and eat your recipe, you get a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book, or you are now less dumb. I also post the recipe and the winner and the photo and everything else at youarenotsosmart.com as well as at the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page. And on this episode, we're going to eat cinnamon cardamom snickerdoodles sent in by Celeste Lindell. And I can tell you, these are possibly the most beautiful cookies I have ever seen in my entire life. All right, so let's get this thing. It looks like a little um, pancake covered in cinnamon and sugar uh, with crispy edges on the outside. It's real. F- it looks it looks fluffy, um, although I know it is a cookie. So hold on, let's let's try this out one second. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you do? Nice to meet you. Ladies and gentlemen, I have just transcended onto a new plane of existence. Hmm. I just astral projected to delicious universe black hole of great cookies. Oh my God. That, that is the best cookie that I've tried so far on the show. If you think you can top this cookie, send your recipe to David at you are not so smart.com. But I believe, I believe this is going to be the one, the one that I remember for all time. This cookie is, um, it's, well, let me tell you the ingredients. The ingredients are uh, cream of tartare, baking soda, sea salt, unsalted butter, um, granulated sugar, eggs, vanilla extract, ground cardamom, granulated sugar, ground cinnamon. I'm uh, not ashamed to say I'd never heard of cardamom before this. And um, you put all this together and it makes a cookie that's um, fluffy on the middle, crispy on the outside and on the edges. And it's just sort of this sparkling shower of um, granulated sugar and cinnamon mixed in with uh, a strong punch 
of butter and um and like the archetypical cookie the platonic solid of cookies just raw cookie all over yourself um well that is a great cookie um thank you very much celeste um you have changed my life and i hope that you make this cookie everyone if you want to get the recipe you can go to you are not so smart.com and i'll have it posted there along with a picture of it and um when i finish recording this podcast i'm going to go eat another one of those cookies very slowly and i'm going to think about my life i'm going to um i'm going to consider um how small i am in front of a mountain and how how long the ocean has been lapping against the shore both before i was born and after i pass mm, that cookie okay let's talk about a little bit of a uh, of news in the world of psychology. I, this study came out, uh, just, uh, before I, I got ready to put this podcast together and it involves popcorn. I found this study in the guardian and in the guardians science and psychology section of their fantastic website. And the headline very eye catching is eating popcorn in the cinema makes people immune to advertising. And According to the article, a study that was recently published in the Journal of Consumer Psychology says that we have something that the researchers call inner speech. So whenever we encounter something new, um, whenever we encounter information that we would find in an advertisement that is uh, seductively attempting to um, get us to, to win us over, we will conduct this uh, behavior, this, this strange, uh, weird phenomenon in our mind, this inner speech, which will, uh, we will subconsciously practice uh, saying those words, or we will practice the pronunciation of those words. And apparently in this study, they had 96 people watch a movie in a cinema, and before the movie, they played advertising, and half of the people were given popcorn, and that was sort of the cover for the study, so they wouldn't know what was being studied or why it was being studied or how it was being studied, and the other half received a sugar cube. So the researchers eliminated some of the variables by having both people ingest something before watching the show or while they were uh, watching the advertising before the show. And afterward, after everything was over, they, they reported back, according to this article, that the, um, the people who were exposed to the advertising while che uh, chewing on popcorn were unable to engage in inner speech, and therefore they speculate that they were um, less able to um, take in the information from the advertising because afterward they showed less positive, fewer positive responses toward the advertised products than did the people who only uh, ate the sugar cube. So there you have it. If you want to avoid uh, the effects of advertising, if you want to get away from um, the messages being delivered, uh, this study at least suggests that you should chew on something while watching advertising. And it also says that uh, it, in, it probably is uh, something that movie theaters are paying attention to. And if this research continues and is definitely true, um, you probably can expect to see some sort of advertising before you get to your food and your candy. Uh, and maybe they will adjust all the other ways that they deliver those messages to you based off of research into uh, chewing versus inner speech versus advertising versus the movie going experience. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. You can find links to everything that I talked about today at youarenotsosmart.com. 
You can also find links to the videos that I sampled and to information about the guests and all sorts of other stuff. You can also find other great podcasts at boingboing.net. Go there, check it out. Find another great podcast to put into your brain. And if you go to youarenotsosmart.com, you can learn more about my book, You Are Not So Smart, and my second book, You Are Now Less Dumb, and merchandise like t-shirts and mugs and all sorts of other cool stuff related to the science of self-delusion. debate in a closed room while people are waiting for pie to cool. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time, at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. S.